Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege of being here at camp meeting. We thank you for the work your spirit has been doing on this campground and in our, in our hearts and lives, Lord. We pray that the Spirit of God would be present this morning. Well, Lord, we know that he already has been. We appreciate what we heard from Pastor Cameron. But Lord, we want the things we're learning to go beyond our hearing of them or even accepting of them, but we want to know how to teach effectively. So we pray your Holy Spirit would, would help us to do just that, uh, for we ask and pray it in Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to mind, a, I'm doing a Spirit of Prophecy seminar in the afternoon, but in the early formation of Adventist doctrine, one of the things that Ellen White says is she describes the experience of when they used to come together initially and they were studying the Bible uh, for into the night and sometimes through the entire night they would come together and study and pray. She said that what they were praying for was two things, an understanding of the doctrines and how they could teach them effectively. That was always a part of the Adventist faith. They, you know, nobody was like, hey, I just want to know this for me. It was, I want to know how to communicate it to others. I'm not quite sure how to, I know if you, for example, if we listen to what, you know, what Cameron just shared with us, you might be wrestling. I can see how a person would wrestle with that and say, well, I've got this study guide, and the study guide goes this way, and how do I incorporate all that? I, the point I'm hoping you are understanding is the need for us to have a grasp on the topic. I can take any study guide, and the Holy Spirit can use this, and I've seen it happen. I can take any study guide and take somebody through question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. But it's a lot different if I own that, if I have a, an understanding of it that I'm conveying through the lesson. And I say that because, well, I've seen a lot of people give lesson studies that they don't understand real well. But that's, part of that is, has to happen. Nobody starts out knowing everything. And the more you share, the more you're going to understand. I'll guarantee that Pastor Cameron didn't just start out thinking all this stuff. But you share it, and you study it, and you share it, and you study it. But the more you, you understand, I think a lot of the things he shared will help. I wouldn't, I wouldn't intend to share all of that in one sit-down study. There's a lot of information. But that understanding will help me to share more clearly the basic points of the study. And that's what I want you to understand. That's what we're going to be talking about now with the lesson on the Sabbath. I just had my Sabbath lesson out. I think I put it in my Bible. Okay, quality time is a lesson here in your lesson study set. Now, what... Does somebody have a question? Number seven. Now, there are four, from my estimation, there are four basic things that you're going to get in just about any Sabbath study. Four things the lesson's going to touch on. One is going to be, when you're talking about the Sabbath, one is going to be, oops, the origin of the Sabbath. You're going to go back to creation. You're going to see that God created in six days, rested on the seventh day, set aside the seventh day, blessed it, hallowed it, Okay. Then you're going to go into the purpose of the Sabbath, usually talking about a memorial to creation, and then also a memorial of, or not a memorial rather, a sign of recreation or sanctification. And I'll flesh that out in a little bit. You're going to go into the day of the Sabbath, 
that it is on Saturday and clarify that in your study and then the importance of the Sabbath. Most lessons that you do on the Sabbath are going to get into these things. Um, so you could have five questions or ten questions or twenty-five questions, but basically you're going to be covering this flow. And so whether you use this set of lessons or some other set of lessons, um, it'll probably follow that general flow. Now, when you're putting together a study, you may come up with something else you want to add in there. But this goes back to what I was saying yesterday. When I'm giving a study, I want to know what I'm basically getting across. I may take three texts or four texts to make this point, but I'm making this point. I don't want this point to get lost in my four texts. And that, that is what can happen when you just go through the study and you're like, okay, question number one, question number two, and you read through it. And even if you do everything right and you're asking the question, they're reading the text, you're asking the question again, they're answering it, you're interacting, all of that, you're not going to be able to communicate the truth if you're just going, if you don't have the greater picture in mind of, I want them to see the origin of the Sabbath. I want them to see the purpose of the Sabbath. I want them to see which day the Sabbath is on. You're steering that as you're going through the study. And so as I'm steering that in a study, I'm going to, I'm going to take the time I need, and there may be one verse that says it better than another that I may take a little more time with so that they can see, wow, the Sabbath originated with God before sin in the you know, um, Garden of Eden, or after, not before the Garden of Eden, but after the uh, creation, he rested and what have you. That I'm going to communicate, and most lessons will. Uh, what I want to do in this time period because we're limited on time, is I want to touch on some of the points on this lesson to show you how they're bringing this out. But then I want to turn to the difficult texts and objections. This is, some of them are brought up in the lesson. And most lessons will, well, let's just look at this lesson for a minute. Lesson starts with a putting, Question number one says, has God demonstrated that he wants to spend time with his children? One of the challenges you'll have with a lesson when you make your own lessons is there's always a core of the study where you've got the information of, I want to show how the Sabbath started, I want to show what its purpose is, I want to show what its day is. This is kind of into the purpose area, but this is laying a framework for the particular lesson. And everybody has their different framework. This one's quality time. So what's the framework? What, are they, what do you think they're going to try to convey about the Sabbath? It's time with the Lord, right? And that's the, that's the framework they put it in. And so that's where if you get, you could take this lesson and then you could go, I don't know what the lesson is called in Mark Finley's Search for Certainty series or Landmarks of Prophecy. You put them all side by side and they're going to have some angle and that's going to be the first so you might have the first two or three texts, and then boom, you're right into the, probably the, almost the same exact texts that most Sabbath studies have. So if you were to write a study, you might say, you know, I'm going to take this angle, but sooner or later you're going to end up with Genesis 1, right? And, and 2, where Ge the Genesis 2, 2, and 3 is going to be in there, which is our second uh, text in this study. But the first one, has God demonstrated that he wants to spend time with his children? Oh, yes, he has. That, you know, and they're, they're, they're setting a, a direction for their study. Question number two, and I'm not going to read all the questions. I'm just looking at the texts. Genesis 2, 2, and 3 tells us where God finished his work of creation, and he rested on the seventh day 
from all his work, and, and he blessed it, and he set it aside. Three things God did on the seventh day. There's no record anywhere in Scripture of him doing anything like this on any other day. So when people argue days, they say, well, you know, what, what does it matter? You know, I keep Sunday, you keep Sabbath, I keep any day, I keep every day, and all these different things. No, there's no record in Scripture of any other day where God rested on it, God blessed it, God set it aside. It, it's not there. The seventh, the seventh day is the only day that's considered blessed in, in uh, the Scripture, and we have it there in Genesis 2, 2, and 3, way, way back. Now, when I get to this, I, I like to point out sometimes that this is, you know, right after creation, before sin, and God established the Sabbath. Why did he establish the Sabbath? Why did he establish the Sabbath? One thing I like to ask, and it's not in this lesson particularly, I like to go to Isaiah, um, oh, now I'm, now I'm blanking in my own mind on that. Um, not 58, 58 is good. No, where the, the, the Lord, um, Isaiah 40, where the Bible says, the Lord, the creator of the heavens, the, the, the creator of the heavens and the earth, um, neither uh, my, my brain is slow this morning. Let's go to Isaiah 40, 28, and we'll just see it. Neither faints nor is weary. Right? So I'll ask people the question. So I get you turning there now, so it just it, it slowly came. Isaiah 40. And verse 28, I'll pose the question, when God rested on the seventh day, was he tired? Wow, he just did all this creating. It was a whole lot of work. Did God get tired in creating? Uh, verse 28, Isaiah 40, 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Creator God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, what? Neither faints nor is weary. Did God get tired? No, God doesn't get tired, does he? And so the point I like to make with that is that when God rested on the Sabbath, his rest wasn't, hey, I got tired and I'm going to take a nap or rest. Because the Sabbath, and so I do that when I'm going into the purpose of the Sabbath. Because we're entering into his rest. Well, you know, for, seventh day, for a lot of Seventh-day Adventists, I don't know who I'm implicating in here, but for a lot of Seventh-day Adventists, Sabbath is nap day. I'm not saying you can't take a nap on the Sabbath, but that is not the purpose of the. It's my day of rest, people say. Well, that wasn't exactly what the Lord did. He didn't go to sleep on, you know, and sleep all Sabbath and wait for it to be over. So his rest was a rest of satisfaction in the perfect creation. And I really want to convey, when I give the, the Sabbath study, I want to convey that because what that means is when I understand that, that God created everything and it came out just as he intended. Is everything just as he intended now? No. So when I rest on the Sabbath, that's a sign to me that God wants to, he's established and wants to keep between us, that he will restore everything the way it was initially. And there's a lot that can be brought out in that. Um, this lesson touches on question number two, the, the, spending that time with the Lord. And then it, the question number three is was the Sabbath day intended only for Jews to keep? Okay, now what's the lesson doing? Why do you think they're asking that question here? Okay, right. Are, are there people who say, well, the Sabbath was made for the Jews? Sure, 
Uh, they call it the Jewish Sabbath and this, that, and the other. Anytime you're doing a lesson, you've got to remember that there's a lot that can be said about the Sabbath, and this is one place where I think we shoot ourselves in the foot as Christians for our own spiritual lives is, um, for example, we can have an evangelistic series, we can have something else, and members don't come out and they say, well, I've heard it before. You know, just because you had a study on something, and a typical study is not designed to exhaust the subject, but the study is designed to meet common questions and objections and bring enough information that a person can make a decision. But it's not exhausting the subject. And so when you're putting together, if you put together your own lessons or when you're giving a lesson, you'll notice the lesson is put together in such a way as to address things that you know are common objections. Now, Bible studies written today are written differently than they were maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago because there are different objections. One of the newer objections that I didn't used to hear a lot of even since I've been back in the church is this big thing where they bring up Hebrews 4 where it talks about you know, the, the entering into the rest and they say Jesus is our Sabbath. Have you ever heard that one? Jesus is my Sabbath. Now suddenly it used to be about a day. In fact, there was a period of time, quite a period of time, where Sunday keepers would keep Sunday the way we're supposed to. I would say the way Adventists keep Sabbath. We don't even keep Sabbath anymore. We do it like the evangelicals oftentimes. We go to church for a couple hours and then it's our own day. But it used to be that people would honor the day and they would honor Sunday. And it was just a matter of saying, well, the Bible says the seventh day is a Sabbath. No, no, the seventh day is Sunday. No, the seventh day is a sa Saturday. What? And that was it. Boom. They saw it and... and in all their heart and mind, they thought they were following the commandments of God. But that's not the case anymore. Now, you have two, your two main uh, uh, diversionary um, beliefs are the whole covenant thing. Well, the covenant said we don't have to keep the, the, the commandments anymore. That didn't used to be the case among Christians. And so your lesson studies didn't have to go into that a lot. We've got a lot of former Adventists who've gone out, they've launched their websites, they make their tax, and these are two of the big ones. Well, we're, we're under the New Covenant, and uh, under the New Covenant, you don't have to keep the Sabbath. There's only two commandments, love God and love your you know, neighbor. Love one another. And, or you'll hear, Jesus is my Sabbath. This is another one that's, you know, that, that, it's a spiritual thing. It's really just resting in Jesus. And once you have Jesus, I mean, you're going to nitpick over a day here, a day there. That's so, that's so um, preschoolish, you know. It's kind of so juvenile. It's so, you know, I'm a more experienced Christian. And I understand it's, it's about spirituality, the Sabbath is. I rest in Jesus all the time, every day. And you hear this, you know, it oftentimes comes across very sanctimonious. But we didn't have that kind of objection years ago. So your studies, your Bible studies over time will change because they're, they're designed to adapt to some of those questions that people ask. So you'll find that in this lesson goes over uh, the point of uh, was the Sabbath intended only for Jews to keep? No, the Bible says the Sabbath was made for man. These are things you want to understand when you're giving this study. You want to ask yourself as you're preparing, why is this question in the study? What is the point being you know, conveyed? And you want to make sure that point is conveyed clearly. Uh, you want to make sure that the person understands that point. Now, there are some people you're going to study with, and they've never heard that the Sabbath was a Jewish thing or anything else, and so it's an, you're not going to probably... If I'm studying with somebody, and I know this is an issue with them, I'm going to spend a little more time on this question than I will maybe. Not that there's a whole lot of time to spend on it. I mean, it's pretty clear. The Sabbath was made. But let's say I do this. 
was the Sabbath intended only for Jews to keep? Mark 2 and verse 27. I say, Laura, could you read that? So Laura reads the text. We're in the Bible study together. And she says, the Sabbath was made for man. Very good. The Sabbath was made for man. Question number four. Now, I could go right past that, and you really didn't, okay, what, what was that there for? I mean, if I just bump past it, okay, the Sabbath was made for man, you want to clarify that point. So when she says the Sabbath was made for man, I ask the question, was the Sabbath day intended for only Jews to keep? And, of course, that brings it out a little bit. No, the Bible says the Sabbath was made for who? Sabbath was made for man. And I might add in there, now, sometimes I've heard people call the Sabbath the Jewish Sabbath. That's an understanding that some people have that only came with the Jews. But just notice that these are the words of Jesus. Jesus makes it clear that the Sabbath wasn't just for the Jews. It was made for who? All mankind, right? And how do we know that? Because he made it when? At creation. So I might throw something out. Now, I'm not, I'm not giving some big, it, it only took me 30 seconds to say that, but it's clarifying the point. And then I'm going to move on. But I want, I, I want to know why, I'm bring, why I or why the lesson is bringing up a certain point. Sometimes it's in the note. And I personally, when I give a study, don't go through all the notes with the person I'm studying with. I mean, they have the lesson. And my goal is that they're going to fill. In a lesson like this, they're going to fill out the lesson, fill in the blanks, read the notes. But to me, it seems... Why am I going to meet with you to study over the lesson? We're just going to read a lesson together. You can read the lesson by yourself. So I, my understanding is that my role as the one studying with you is to teach the lesson, bring out the things. So there are times where I think, oh, there's a good point in the note. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll make notations to myself. Why don't you read? I say, Laura, why don't you read the note under that? I may have her read the note and then comment on the note. Maybe the note says it all, but I don't just go through question one, read, read the note, question two. I will either explain, like I did there, and sometimes I may go through two or three questions without much explanation, and then, because sometimes the questions will build. One builds into the next, builds into the next, and then I'll make an explanation. So, you know, what we've just seen is this. For example, when I give the Sabbath study, and it's in here in... in um, Pretty, pretty similar order. Most studies are going to go through the history of Sabbath keeping. Well, you know, did the, did the patriarchs and apostles and prophets keep the Sabbath? Or uh, patriarchs and prophets. The Old Testament, did they keep the Sabbath? Well, yeah, obviously. What about Jesus? Did Jesus keep the Sabbath? A lot of studies won't necessarily go into the Old Testament. That's pretty clear. The commandments are there and everything else. But the question will be, what about Jesus? Did he keep the Sabbath? Well, we'll go to Luke 4.16. And what does it say? As his custom was, he went into the synagogue. What are you going to, now, when you're in that particular question and you're studying that and the person reads Luke 4.16, and as his custom was, Jesus went into the synagogue and stood up for to read. Well, what are you going to say on that one? What do you think you're going to want to, you want to just bump onto the next question yet? Or what do you think you might want to just emphasize there? Custom, right? You want them, you don't want them to read over that. Well, let's see, as his custom was, what is a custom? And incidentally, it talks about that in the context is when it's in Nazareth. Where was Nazareth? His hometown. That's where he grew up from a boy, right? So from a boy, what did the Bible say Jesus did? And I'll, this, I'll do this in a study. So we'll read it, and I'll say, now, this is his, what does the Bible say it was? His custom. What's a custom? And I'll let them answer that. 
And if they don't get it right, I'll ask them again, and I'll make sure they get it right. I'm going to steer that. I'm teaching. It's a, well, that's something you do. If they, yeah, well, custom. What is a custom? Uh, it's kind of a cultural. Well, and then so, so let's say somebody's kind of, they're not sure. I'll say, well, custom is a custom something you, you just do one time. Oh, no, no. See, so you help them out. No, so custom is something you do what? On a regular basis. Now, Nazareth is the place that Jesus grew up. Now, I might ask him or I might just say that and say, so then this has been his custom how long? His whole earthly life. Jesus goes to church on the Sabbath. That was Jesus' custom. Now, Jesus had a custom of doing something. Don't you think it'd probably be a good custom for us to have? Okay, well, let's go on to the. Now, I may uh, emphasize that word custom there, but then you go from Jesus, you go to the apostles keeping the Sabbath, and there are usually a couple texts or three texts, maybe, different questions that will go with the apostles keeping the Sabbath. So I might just go through and read the question and the next. Let's look at this lesson. I'm sure it does bring that up because I looked at it earlier. One of the ones it emphasizes in here is one that I always emphasize. I'm going to touch on that with you in a moment. Um, yeah, in fact, 11. So this one really doesn't take a lot of time in other. Like I usually go to um, Acts chapter 16, where it talks about them going down by the riverside. Acts chapter, well, this brings up 13, Acts 18. There are a lot of texts that talk about the apostles worshiping on the Sabbath day, several of them talk about them going to the synagogue. So I like the Acts 16 text because it talks about how they went down by the riverside. Some people. It's in Study Guide 8. Okay, very good. So, yeah, okay, because Study Guide 8 goes into a little bit of some of the change of the Sabbath. And so they've done, they've, they've kind of covered it in two lessons here. But Acts, number, question number 11 is key. I, this is one of the most key texts you're going to use in a Sabbath study because if people haven't heard it, you know they're going to hear that the day was changed by Jesus or the apostles and that they, in the early church, they worshipped on the first day of the week. That's what they're going to hear. So I want you to look up Acts chapter 13. I spend time, more time, on Acts chapter 13. You see number 7 has Luke 4.16 in there. Um, Acts chapter 13 and verse 42. Now I'll start, when I do Acts 13, I may go back. You don't necessarily have to do this, but I go to 13.13 because what you have is you have an introduction and Paul begins to give a sermon. So you go to Acts 13.13 and it says, now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue, when? On the Sabbath day, and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then Paul goes in to preach. So sometimes I'll read that. Or one way or the other, I'll either read it or I'll say, I, I like to give a little of the background of what we're reading in this particular verse, that when we get to verse 42, what's happened is Paul has just preached a sermon on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. 
After he does this, it says in verse 42, so when the what? Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles, what's the word there? Begged, don't miss that, that these words might be preached to them when? The next Sabbath. The next Sabbath. Okay, so they're in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, the seventh day Sabbath, Saturday. Paul preaches a sermon, and the way the synagogue was set up, the, the Jews had priority. The, the Gentiles were quarantined in another part of the, the synagogue. And so they had to wait for all the Jews to leave. And then they came up. Now, just I'll throw this out here. If you read in the NIV, oh, now I'm trying to remember what it says. It doesn't say Gentiles there. Okay? But the context makes it clear that it's Gentiles. And I'm just saying that it's clearer here in the wording but the concept is still the same. So the Jews go out, and the Gentiles do what? They beg to hear more of the same when? On the next Sabbath. Now, just this is, this is an easy equation here to figure out. If the apostles, as people, some people say, were holding Sunday services for Gentile believers, put yourself in Paul's shoes. You're the apostle Paul, okay? and you want to see people saved. You especially, you've got a burden for Gentile people. So you're preaching on Saturday in the synagogue of the Jews, but you also have a church service Sunday morning. So some Gentiles come to you on Saturday, and they're not asking you. They're doing what? They're begging you to hear more. Next Sabbath. What are you going to tell them? Hey, well, you don't got to wait on next Sabbath. Guess what? Tomorrow morning we got a service for Gentiles. That's when we meet. Right? What does the Bible say? Look what it says. Verse 43 says, When the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And on the wind, next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. What's that telling us? There were no Sunday services in the New Testament. They were not there. Scripture does not record it. You do not have any evidence of that. History doesn't tell us we have evidence of any Sunday service until 2nd century A.D. You could throw that out there. But that, so I like a person to see that because even if they haven't thought about it, I know that when they begin talking to their friends or their pastor or whatever, somebody's going to tell them, well, you don't keep the Sabbath. The New Testament church didn't keep the Sabbath. Oh, yes, they did. And where did they see it? They saw it in the Bible. And, you know, the Sabbath study, I'm not, like I said, I want to take a, 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 a lot more time in the particular study itself. I want to look at some of the objections because if you go through the study, question number eight, let me see if, a, a couple points that I might add in here. And they have, they have it in the additional facts, but... People wonder, what, how do we know? This is what they'll say. How do we know which day the Sabbath day is? Well, praise the Lord for Luke 23, because in number question number 8, it says, which day of the week is the Sabbath day? And you go through and read Luke 23, 50. It has 23, 56, but I would read right on through, which the note kind of takes you through, to 24. Why don't we look at that in our Bibles? Luke 23, Matthew, Mark, Luke 23, 56, and you want to read on through here. It says, then they returned, and I actually start here in verse 50. 
If I don't start there, I still need to explain it. And this is one of the challenges of having a Bible study. Sometimes a study is written, and they don't want to put this big, long passage, so you put one little verse. But if I start in verse 56, it says, Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. They returned from where? What were they doing? And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. That doesn't give us the insight that we need. So I'm looking at question number eight, and I look at the text, and I fill in the blank, but that really isn't giving me my answer. They've got this nice little thing below Friday, Sabbath, Saturday, and Sunday, but that's not in verse 56. That's in verse 50 through 24, verse 1. And so you want, this is again in preparation. If you don't prepare for your lesson, you're going to show up there and you're going to be at the Bible study. You're going to read that question. You're going to be like, hmm. And you're going to hope they don't ask. Which day of the week is the seventh day Sabbath? It's not in there. It doesn't say which day. It says the Sabbath according to the commandment. It doesn't tell you which day. It doesn't confirm it. You say, so you see the Sabbath is Saturday. And hope. Right. But, they, but the commandment, they, they don't know which day the seventh day is. So they say. I mean, people will ask you, and I've had this in meetings. They'll say, well, how do we know which day is the seventh day? And the, really, the reality is that they're, they're, the conviction is coming, and they're thinking, okay, how could I get around this one? But that's what people will do. You say, well, it's on the seventh day. Count them off. Saturday, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Oh, how do we know that for sure? How do we know the calendar wasn't changed? How do we know? Yes. Well, you know, in Europe, they have put in Sunday as the seventh day. That's the calendar year. Right. You know, so yeah. this may work here in the States, but what if you have a European that you're working with? Right. So that's why, that's why I'm saying what I'm about to say here is if you go to verse 56, that doesn't answer your question. And you can hope they don't ask you because if they, you're, you, if you didn't prepare, see we're preparing now and you're going to be prepared for it because I'm going to tell you what you are going to do here and it works every time. It's crystal clear. But if I just go to verse 56 like the study says and if I didn't prepare and I showed up and then they asked me and I, and I hadn't reviewed this and they said, well, how do we know? That doesn't say it's Saturday. I'd go, uh, and I'd look like an idiot because I wouldn't know. That's why you want to prepare ahead of time. So if you go to verse 50, this is, this is what... The passage, the passage tells us, Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for what? The body of Jesus. Then he took it down. Took it down from where? The cross, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the sabbath drew near so here it says on the day of the preparation which according to this is the day before the sabbath he went and took the body of jesus down from the cross then it says the women who had come with him from galilee followed after they observed the tomb and how his body was laid then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the sabbath according to the commandment so this helps us to know that that day was a Sabbath according to the Ten Commandments, but it tell, doesn't tell us which day it is. But in the context, we know it's, it, this is the Sabbath of the commandment. If we can figure what day of the week this is, we're right on. Chapter 24, verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, well, which day is the Sabbath according to the commandment? The seventh day. So they rested on that day, and then real early the next morning they got up, and it says, that uh, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. 
that they found the stone rolled away from the tomb and what? Jesus was risen. Now listen, this is easy, and I'll tell you why it's easy. Christian world has made this easy. As a, as a, just about any calendar you have is going to say that, that little on Passion Week, that weekend, that that Friday, they call it what? Good Friday. Good Friday. I shouldn't even ask that Friday because I'm making the assumption. We're reading the passage, which day is which? Well, which day is the preparation where Jesus was crucified? All across the board, people agree that Jesus died on what we call Good Friday. And people also agree that Jesus raised on what day we call Easter Sunday. Well, when's Sabbath according to the commandments? The Bible puts it right between the two. You can't miss it. He crucified on one day, and then the day right after that was Sabbath according to the commandment, and the day right after that he was risen. The Sabbath according to the commandment is the day before Jesus rose, and there's not a Christian around who won't argue with you that it will argue with it Jesus didn't rise on Sunday. And so that... That's a better argument than the calendar one, because the calendars are... Right. Right. So here you have it right from Scripture, and, you're, and, and, and we have enough common knowledge among people from Scripture. That, oh, yeah, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, bam, they're there. You, they see it right in the Bible. Yes, exactly. And, and that's what I would do. I would say, so the day Jesus was crucified on, the day he died on the cross on, we, we celebrate that. Some people celebrate that today. We have it on the calendar. It's called Good What? And let them answer it. And the day he rose on is called Easter. And they'll answer it for you. And then, well, what day is the one in between? Yes. What do you do with um, someone from a totally secular culture, say someone from China who's grown up an atheist, who their calendar is the first day of the week is Saturday? Yeah. And they don't have something like Easter. How do you deal with that? I'm going to tell you something. If Ellen White makes a really amazing statement, and it's true. She says, if it weren't for the false teachers of the Bible, if people just were allowed to read the Bible without the interpretation of the false teachers, they would come to the truth like that. When you deal with athe atheists, they're easy. People don't believe the Bible because you show them in the Bible. It, it, once they've seen that, wow, there's something about the Bible, they don't have the influence of some other false teacher telling them, well, it doesn't, doesn't mean what it says. And so their calendar is different, but when you, you, know, you show them that Jesus died, and historically, it, it, it really doesn't matter what their calendar is. Historically, we know that Jesus died on a Friday, and he rose on a Sunday. Um, you know, now their calendars reflect, the day of the week is still the same for them. So it's not the seventh day, but the, the, the interesting thing here is it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't refer to, well, I guess, you know, the first day of the week, very early, you would have to basically introduce them to the different calendar, which they're not surprised by. In other words, they know already that our calendar is different from their calendar. They also know that calendars around the world are different. And I don't want to get in a big calendar discussion uh, from a standpoint of... Um, hold on a minute. Let me try to conclude the thought. Anyway, um, people, nations have used different calendars, not only... Uh, I mean, you look at the Jewish months, they're different months. They start their years in spring and end them in, you know, the next spring. Spring to spring, fall to fall calendars are common in Babylonia and Persia. And so it's not that they're not accustomed to that. Just sharing the information, they'll see that. It's pretty straightforward. And a corroboration for that is I go here first because it's Scripture. But from Scripture, I go two other places, the dictionary and languages. 
and languages is an amazing evidence of the Sabbath because languages are old. I mean, some languages are very old, and in, in at least, I know it's over 104, and I don't know what the, what the number is, languages of the world, their day, their name for their seventh day is Sabbath. Our name is on Saturn, but their day of the week is called Sabbath, their seventh day. And so even, you know, a, a person who's an atheist who may have a different calendar will reckon that, I mean, there's a lot of evidence there. What, if, if that's the case and the seventh day is not Saturday or Sabbath, how come all these other, you know, they're familiar with, in fact, most people, the people in China speak more languages than Americans do. Everybody speaks more languages. You've heard the saying, uh, if you speak three languages, you're trilingual, two languages, bilingual, one language, you're American. <laughs> yes. <laughs> languages? Uh, yeah, with the languages. Well, you should be telling us. I will say, I'll say this, though. Be careful not to overthink it. And, and what I mean by that is, I'm not talking about overthinking this, overthinking how people will respond. Here, here's something that you want to really take to heart. In fact, one of my favorite texts in the Bible is... Um, 2 Corinthians 13.8. Now, I want to make sure I've got 2 Corinthians, not first. Sometimes I've, I do that. I, I would go and say something like that. Um, the Bible says, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. 2 Corinthians 13.8. And what that's saying is this, and take this to heart. God is the owner, author and owner of truth. And if what you are sharing is truth, the Bible says the spirit of truth will bear witness to that truth and lead people into that truth. And so I don't have to worry about convincing a person who's sincere. The spirit of God will convince them, but he's not going to convince them of error. And so I, that's the Apostle Paul, when he said that, he, was, he had a confidence that, hey, I know the truth is going to prevail. And it's not that people won't ask you questions, and you may have to say, okay, how am I going to answer this? But the reality is, if a person's sincerely seeking, you're not going to need some big, long, drawn-out, well, go back and do some historical research and bring it back to them. The, the, the passage in the scripture and a little bit of evidence, maybe from calendars or languages or whatever, is, will suffice. Um, I mean, I've been doing this for 15 years plus, and uh, I just, I've never had to have a big, long, drawn-out discussion. Uh, except for somebody who doesn't, just doesn't want to keep it. And, and you can tell sometimes, too, I've had discussions with people, and you stump them. They're just like, oh, they're speechless, but they still don't give in because they're just uh, whatever, and they'll divert to something else, change the subject. But most people, that's very sufficient. I just want you to know in the lesson, when you come to Luke 23, 56, you want to give a little bit more because that's not covering what that little, the note brings it up. If you look at the note, it starts with 23, 54, and then refers to Luke 24, 1. But if you just go at the lesson and you don't bring all that into it, it's not going to make the point that the lesson is going to make. Logan? Yeah, they, they don't go there. I've just never had anybody go there. Seventh day of the week, that's being taught by paganism, paganism culture. But that, you know, when they say sun, sun, not surely die. Yeah, well, you know, I think. The different calendars don't change. You can, you can get the Bible framework on what day. One thing that's clear is in the Bible, well, 
the argument I forgot is the strongest argument in favor of the seventh day is the fact that you have a whole nation of people who kept it since God gave it. Amen. Okay? Like, uh, I, I th I've heard Pastor Bachelor say before, you know, you could convince me if you had some guy that was stranded on an island somewhere and he lost track of time, he lost track of the Sabbath day, but you're going to tell me the whole Jewish nation somehow lost track of which day the Sabbath was? I mean, they've been keeping it since God gave it as a nation. So, uh, even... For, uh, People just won't argue that. Even if they're from another culture and they have a different calendar, they'll recognize that the Jews have always recognized the seventh day as a Sabbath, and then that Luke 23, 50 uh, and onward will clarify that. Let's look at these difficult texts and objections here. And I've got them written out. You can read through them, but I just want to highlight the, the, the I'm just going to go through them here, starting at the top one there, the Lord's Day. Um, some of these are more common than others, but these are the, the objections you're going to usually get. The Lord's Day... In Revelation, oh, the Sunday is the Lord's Day. You'll read this in a lot of places. I've seen Catholic encyclicals that talk about the Lord's Day and it's Sunday, and they, it's, the whole thing is a supposition. John says in Revelation 1, and this is all he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And they have derived from that passage that the Lord's Day must refer to the new Sabbath or Sunday. From what? Where do you get that from? There's nothing in Scripture. So people will say, well, I know that there's the Sabbath, but Christians worship on the Lord's Day. And I say, amen. And if you go through the Bible and you look all through the Bible, there's only one day that's ever called the Lord's Day. Jesus said the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath day. The commandment says, um, six days shall you labor and do all your work for the seventh day. is The Sabbath what? Of the Lord thy God. You go to Isaiah 58 and the Lord says, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day. I mean, over and over, the only day ever called the Lord's Day that God claims as his day is the seventh-day Sabbath. So that's an easy one to refute. Just share some of the other passages, and you look at Revelation. I mean, I'll have the person tell me, the Lord's Day, where, where is that? I don't know where it is. Well, I think it's in Revelation 1. Why don't you look at that? Yeah, tell me in there where it's this. It's not there. There's nothing there that says it's any other day that we get. It just says it's, John says he was in the Sabbath and the Lord's or he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Well, it was the Sabbath day. When John had that vision of Revelation. Now, Romans, the two main objections you typically are going to get. I'll tell you what happens oftentimes when you share the Sabbath with somebody. The first thing is, well, the day was changed. Okay? That one's pretty easy to handle, I'll be honest with you. Um, the, 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 the next study after this one, um, what's it called again? Something about the day that was changed. I forget the name, the title of the lesson. But that go, what that does, every evangelist has done this in the Adventist Church since we started. There are five, I'm sorry, there are eight Sunday texts in the New Testament. That's it. And they don't say Sunday. You know, the Bible doesn't say Sunday or Saturday. It says first day, second day, seventh day, whatever. There are eight first day texts in the New Testament. That's it. So if we're looking to see the change of the day, we would find it in one of those days when it talks about text that talks about the first day. Five of those simply say that Jesus rose on the first day. They say nothing about worship or anything else. There's three other texts there, and that's highlighted in... Uh, I'm going to jump over to Romans 14 for a minute and look at the next bold uh, face. It says, The disciples came together on the first day to break bread, signifying a new day of worship. That's what people will say. The text there, Acts 27, says they came together on the first day of the week. That's one of the eight texts to break bread. And they say they were breaking bread. It was a communion service, <laughs> which is not what it says. But the easy answer to that is, number, 
number one, obviously, the breaking of bread, because they broke bread, doesn't, sim doesn't signify anything about a change in the Sabbath. Furthermore, the Bible tells us, and it's a little bit further down, well, let's just read what it says. The argument here is since we all were present on the first day, it must have been a worship service. Besides the fact that there's no clear language that says anything regarding worship in the text, the Bible tells us elsewhere that the disciples broke bread daily from house to house. Okay? And then it touches on the, the fact that there are these first day texts and brings uh, these up, one being 1 Corinthians 16, which is the next one. So the fact that they gathered together and broke bread on the first day doesn't mean they're worshiping. They broke bread every day together. And I tell people, I've preached on every day of the week. I've preached Sunday services for churches. That doesn't make it a new Sabbath day. Just because they gathered doesn't make it. You know, God wrote his commandments on tables of what? Stone. We still use the expression written in. What does that mean? Can't be changed. And God changed the Sabbath by something as vague as, as this. There are several things that can be brought up. But we've already looked at the fact that New Testament record, we don't have any New Testament record of the apostles keeping the first day of the week. Okay? So when people come over and they say, for example, Romans 14, well, Paul said this, and he means that we can keep any day. If that's what he was teaching, why don't we have record of Paul keeping any day? We just don't have record. You know, you would expect that if the apostles were teaching the day was changed, if Jesus was teaching, then you'd have evidence that they kept a different day. But we don't have any scriptural evidence. It's not there because they didn't keep a different day. So this coming together on the first day of the week, I just usually go to Acts 2.46 and say they broke bread every day of the week. The fact that... That they gathered doesn't mean it was a new day of worship. And one example I've heard that I've given before is, uh, and I told this in my evangelistic meetings, imagine that I came in here and I told you, okay, guys, now remember, tomorrow we all start driving on the other side of the road, like they do in Europe, right? Why are you looking at me that way? <laughs> tomorrow, aren't you guys, didn't you guys hear this? Our government changed, we're changing, they said it's safer for some reason or the other, but we're, honestly, you didn't hear this. We start Driving on the other side of the road tomorrow. Now, you're not going to believe that, are you? Why? Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, somebody's going to come out of here, get in an accident, and say, well, how fast Howard said. Why wouldn't you believe it? It's not just the authority. I heard it on the news. I don't need to be the authority. Yeah. That's right. If we're going to make a change to our nation, to, our, to our, 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 our driving laws that big, you know you'd be hearing about it for six months at least. It would have been everywhere. You would have been here. You would have heard about it. But God Almighty changed his commandments that he wrote with his finger on tables of stone by some text as obscure as, oh, they just happened to meet on the first day of the week. So it must have changed the law of God. It's ludicrous. And I share that with people, and you know what registers? They're like, yeah, I, get, I mean, we would do, they know we would do much more if we were changing one of our laws, but God's going to change one of the Ten Commandments, and there's no clear cut, oh, by the way, I'm changing this. No, there's nothing in Scripture about it. And so this text here is it? No, they gather together on every day. Yeah. Well, I have a question. I was just, their argument was that the mm -hmm. Well, then my, my, my simple question, there's a few questions I would ask to that. Did the Holy Spirit only ever fall on the first day of the week? 
Incidentally, that's true on the day of Pentecost was on a Sunday, the best we can figure from pretty straightforward. But 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 what makes that? Why would that change? You know, the, it's 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 a uh, it's a total assumption. The Holy Spirit fell in the Old Testament and the New. The Holy Spirit came upon Samson. What day was it on? Well, it was on Thursday. Do we worship on Thursday? What about the, 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 the? That wasn't the only time in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius and his household. So he fell upon them in Rome. Should we all be worshiping in Rome? I mean. It's an argument that doesn't exist. There's no scriptural evidence. And I would just tell somebody, listen, my faith is based on plain teaching of scripture. And there is no plain, the only plain teaching of scripture I can see is, and I would follow up that um, assumption they're making with, if that's the case, why again, and I keep going back to this, why don't we have any evidence at all in the New Testament of them Worshiping on the first day of the week, as the as the Sabbath, we don't. This gathering here that it talks about in uh, Acts twenty doesn't say they were worshiping; they're breaking bread, and the Bible talks about that when they ate food. Yeah, they'd have to come together to break bread. That's how they did it. So, yes. Um, in the series, they're all over the apostles. I mean, they were all they were watching them all the time. If they made the change from, wouldn't it have been there? Like, yeah. Wouldn't it have and been all up, I mean, it would have been all Yeah, you follow, you, I mean, time does not permit. There are passages in the book of Acts that tells us that uh, when Paul went to trial before Felix and Festus and, uh, and uh, Agrippa, he said, I follow all things that are written in the Law and the Prophets. Well, how could he say that if he was breaking the Sabbath? Um, Jesus, they had to have false witnesses. What false witness do you need? I mean, what was, what, what was the, per, the penalty for Sabbath breaking? Yeah. You could have a death penalty on Sabbath breaking. If Jesus was out breaking the Sabbath and teaching everybody to break the Sabbath, no, they had to have false witnesses. Why? Well, he obviously wasn't teaching that. What did Jesus say? Every time they tried to trap him, he'd say it is lawful to do good. Who cares if it's lawful? What does lawful mean? In harmony with law. Who cares? If Jesus was doing away with it, he'd say, no. They said, you're not, you're not doing what's lawful. Of course I'm not. Right? Why would he argue something law is lawful? And people will argue this. They'll say, well, Jesus was doing that because he was just doing it for the sake of the Jews because he didn't want to cause conflict. <laughs> oh, let's see. Why did they crucify him again? You know, it just doesn't. None of it washes. So, but these are the common. I'm going to touch on a couple of these, and I'm going to have to run through these lessons here, these other ones. I want to really highlight some things. So, it says, it says uh, the, the next one is the 1 Corinthians 16. Paul said the church, this is the argument that people make, Paul said the church should take a collection on the first day of the week indicating that they were meeting for worship. Okay? The fact is the Bible doesn't say when they take the collection. Paul said lay aside in store on the first day of the week so that when we come as the apostles we can pick it up and you don't have to be scrambling around trying to gather it has nothing to do with a day of worship, has nothing to do, doesn't tell us. It just, it doesn't have to do with, they say, well, he's taking up an offering. And so it must happen during a church service. It doesn't say anything like that here. you just reading, that's totally reading into the text. So you can read the answers a little more detailed, but that's our, uh, another first day text. And then the final first day text, I don't mention here, I mentioned it underneath that last one, Acts 27, down toward the end, John 20, 19. 
And it talks about how the disciples were gathered together on the first day of the week. But it says right in the text, they were gathered because of the fear of the Jews. They weren't gathering to worship. And so your study, the, whole, the lesson study, uh, number eight, goes over all those first day texts. And that's, that's it. That's all there are. There's nothing. John 20. It's, in, it's, in, it's under this. Yeah, under the third paragraph towards the end. But it's in your lesson. Your lesson number eight goes over all the first day texts. In John 20, 19, that's one of the common ones, yes. Well, my question is, the yes. lesson, the seventh lesson, is specifically... Mm -hmm. But now you have a pretty between those two. Yeah. Is that necessary? I mean, is that... It's not necessary. That's just how I would do it. If I were to do it differently, I would maybe do seven and eight and then do... 18. But I want Antichrist in there because that's the, the, there's something about God foretelling that he would change, to, intend to change times and law. I mean, you know, you're talking about the Sabbath and then you're saying, well, the Sabbath was changed and they're looking at you like this. What do you mean? Like you're telling me the Sabbath, but everybody in the world keeps Sunday. And you're telling me, you're, suddenly you're some guru that seems to know you got omniscience or something and you know something that nobody else in the world knows. That's how they look at you. So when you go to prophecy, and prophecy foretells a power that was going to come and think to change times and laws, and then you get the historical statements regarding that, 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 come, that, that gives a lot of evidence in favor of the Sabbath. So if I were to move it, I wouldn't move it far off from that. I might do that 7, 8, and then the Antichrist, but I would do that in a group. Um, the law was nailed at the cross. This is... This one in the Romans 14, let me just say this, Romans 14, look at Romans 14 with me. Romans 14 is used dealing with both food and the Sabbath. People will say in Romans 14 that the Bible, you know, it's, Paul says, well, let's look at it. Romans 14, 5. It says, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems what? Every day alike, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He observes the day, observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. Well, you know, that sounds pretty plain. And this, one, this is one of the common texts that people will bring up. Two main things I would say here. The first is, again, if this is what Paul was teaching, why don't we have any record of him keeping the first day? If he's being so emphatic about keeping whatever day you want and then... What three points I'd make up. First, we don't have record of the apostles keeping a different day. Number two, let's just say it was up to us to keep a day. Why wouldn't we choose the day God already chose? Right? If I'm going to choose something, if I'm going to a restaurant, you've been to it and I haven't been to it, and you're like, man, and I'm like, man, I don't want to waste my money and get something I don't like. Get this. This is really good. I've had several of the dishes here. This is really good. Why would I, not dis why would I disregard that? If I don't like the same food as you, maybe. you got nuts in it, and I can't eat nuts. But as a rule, I'm going to take your recommendation. If I'm going to choose my own day, why not choose God's day? Even if that was an option, which is not an option. Um, where, where, where? No, fast days. Yeah, and, I, and I'll touch on that. In fact, there's a good, um, let me comment on that in just a moment. Romans 14, the very first thing it says, don't miss this, and this is where a lot of people miss in Romans 14, verse 1. It says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not 
to disputes over doubtful things. So everything else that follows in Romans 14 is what kind of things? What is a doubtful thing? Something you're unsure of. Are the commandments doubtful? Are they unclear? Are they vague somehow? No. Paul's not talking about things that are black and white. He's talking about those kind of things, including days, that people have dispute over. And scholars believe that the context is likely days of fasting. You see this in the ministry of Jesus. People come up and say, why do your disciples not fast? Fasting was a big thing. Fasting had to do with days and food. And Romans 14 talks about days and food. Now, I'm not positive about that. I'm just telling you that's where a lot of scholars think Paul's addressing that kind of thing. You have a parallel to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and you'll see Paul talking about the one with the weaker conscience and the things that you eat and food sacrificed to idols. That's, the, that's what most scholars think that Paul is dealing with. Okay, But even if not, the day he's talking about observing, it says one man esteems one day above another. He doesn't say God esteems the day. These are not talking about God's days, but man's days. Do people, do some people have regard over certain days that other people don't have regard over? Let's talk about Christmas. Does everybody in the world celebrate Christmas on December 25? No. Do all Christians celebrate Christmas on December 25? No. Does the Bible say you can't celebrate Christmas on December 25? Some people would argue that, and you get arguments even in the Christian church. But the point is, there are certain things that we just don't have a plain thus saith the Lord for. It's a doubtful thing. And Paul's saying in doubtful things, a man's got to choose for himself and be accountable to God for it. Okay? He doesn't say anything at all in here about worship. doesn't say anything about the Sabbath. And so the person's just reading into the text. And... Sometimes what I'll tell a person is, after explaining, I'll say, okay, I'll give you, let's just say that this is talking about the Sabbath. How come we, we, we now have contradictory evidence elsewhere in the New Testament? In other words, why would Paul be saying that this is not an issue, you know, you, you keep it every day, and yet you see Jesus keeping the Sabbath day. You see the apostles keeping the Sabbath day. You see Jesus telling his disciples in the future, let, no, let pray your flight not be on the winter or the Sabbath day. In other words, we don't take our beliefs from one text. And so for a person to take a text which in itself isn't crystal clear if it comes to changing the Sabbath, why are you going to take, the, take that text and make it change everything else in the New Testament and all of Scripture? There's just nothing here to do it with. Romans, 4, uh, Romans 14 is about doubtful things. It's about days that man observes, not about days God observes. Likely fast days that the Jews uh, uh, wanted to be observed. And Paul said, look, if you want to fast, go ahead and fast. Right, Because the scripture doesn't tell you how many days you have to fast or what days to fast on. If you want to fast, go ahead and fast, but don't condemn your brother because he doesn't fast on the day you fast. That makes sense. But it doesn't make sense if you try to put the Sabbath in there because God explicitly stated when the Sabbath is. Now, I'm going to tell you that if you share that with somebody, if they really want to know the truth, that'll be sufficient. If they don't, they'll keep on holding on to that and arguing that. And that's why I'll tell them, look, Paul's not going to contradict everything else in the New Testament with this passage right here. In, in our evangelistic series, we talk about fence posts. If you've ever, anybody here ever set fence posts? Yep. This is an aerial view, okay? You got your fence posts. You want your fence in a straight line, but somehow you get knocked a couple of them. That looks like a six. You got a couple of them out of whack, okay? Now, tell me what you're going to do. Are you going to look at this and say, well, these two are out of line. I'm going to move all these ones over. No, you're going to take the two 
and put them in line with the other five here, aren't you? There are texts in the Bible that are crystal clear. There are always texts that are going to be a little bit, I'm not quite sure what it says. Are you going to interpret the unclear text by the clear, or are you going to take the clear text and realign them to fit the unclear text? Look, if I have a text that tells me that the dead know nothing, which is very plain and straightforward, and then I have another text that it could be taken either way, which way am I going to take it? If the bulk of my texts are saying the dead know nothing, then that's where I'm going to align the unclear text. Romans 14 is not some crystal clear text on the Sabbath. So even if it had potential to be talking about the Sabbath day, you have enough other clear texts in the Bible that would say, well, if that was the case, it would contradict the Bible, and then I'd have a bigger problem on my hands than just the Sabbath. Are you following what I'm saying? So anyway, uh, I'm not going to spend the time to go through. These are all kind of spelled out. You can read through them, the key objections. I kind of had hoped to, but I really want to look over these supplemental studies because you don't have these in this study series. The studies on a Christian dress and Christian entertainment lifestyle. And I'm just going to give you the flow of the study so you know what it's addressing. We're going to start with Christian entertainment and lifestyle. And... You'll notice I have a purpose of the study listed at the top. And the purpose is to help people understand how a Christian should live. Do you have it? How a Christian should live in order to glorify God, win others to Christ, and experience true happiness. And to urge them to purpose in their heart to commit their lifestyle to Jesus. Now I start this with Psalm 1, 1 through 3. And I actually started here because of your husband, Brenda, and his story of his brother, Peter. And he shares uh, the story. I've told the story. Some of you heard me tell the story of Peter Keish um, as a young man who uh, was tempted to compromise his faith. But he had learned Psalm 1, 1 from an early age. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Um, and, and it goes on to say, but blessed is he who delights himself in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Well, that's my, my first text, blessed is the man. That word blessed, do you know what it means? Happy, that's what the word means. And so my question, first question is, what is God's recipe for happiness? And God says, this is what's going to make you happy. Happy is the man who doesn't do these things, but instead delights himself in the law. And the word for that, as we touched on the other day, is the Hebrew word Torah. Or maybe I didn't touch on that in here. Which equals, which means instruction. Okay, now to the Jews, this was the first five books of Moses, the Torah. And the word means instruction. But the point is, it, that David's saying is, happy is the man who who delights himself in God's instruction. And so that's my introduction in this lesson, and then I'm going to begin in this lesson to look at the instruction that God gives us in regard to our lifestyles as Christians, because we want to be happy, right? So that's the framework that I use in this particular lesson. Happy is the person who delights in the instruction of God. Question number two what does the Bible urge us not to love and why? This is where the Bible says, love not the world or the things in the world. And then it talks about the things that are in the world or the lust of the flesh, or the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And uh, the explanation here just basically describes the lust of the flesh. 
The, the word lust in some translations says desires, but that's what it means. We, see, we read lust and we think sexual sin. And that's not just what this is saying in 1 John. It's saying the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Desires of the flesh are the physical pleasures arising out of the body. It includes sexual immorality, includes drug addiction, food addictions, all of that. The desires uh, for food, the desires for love, the desires for sex are all good the way God made them, but the devil has sought to pervert those things. The desires of the eyes, lust, greed, other things. Anyway, that's brought up. The Bible urges us not to love the things the world loves. And then the lesson will begin to get more, a little more, more specific in those areas. Question three, do the pleasures of the world, and obviously I'm not having you look these up. I'm just giving you the flow of this as you see our clock. But you understand the general thought process that I'm going through and why I'm uh, highlighting certain things. Now, number three, do the pleasures of the world bring real, lasting happiness? Hebrews 11:24 through 26 is where it tells us that Abraham refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy what the Bible calls the passing pleasures of sin. There are two points I like to make in this verse. Number one, what did it mean to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter? What was Pharaoh's daughter? Who was Pharaoh? The king of Egypt. What does it mean to be his grandson? Royalty and heir to the throne. Is that a big thing? But Moses chose not to have that he would rather suffer affliction, which is, it's a great text. Like, okay, I'm not going to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm going to enjoy the peaceful times with my people. No, it's not peaceful times. It says he would rather suffer affliction with the people of God um, it, it, rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Okay, so the first thing I want them to realize is what Moses was laying aside. And then why would he lay aside being a king for affliction? Well, it talks about the passing pleasures of sin. The second point I like to make is, and I'll ask the question, is sin pleasurable? Don't, you know, the Christian's like, mm, I'm not supposed to say, yes, it is. It is. That's why the devil, but it's not lasting. And this is the point. And the, my favorite part of this passage is, the last part of it says uh, that Moses did all this for he looked to the reward. And as Christians, there are things the devil will try to entice us with through the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And they may feel good. We may enjoy them. But that enjoyment is not lasting. And when we come down to the end, there's a reward. And God has a reward for the righteous. Moses looked to the reward. reward. He looked to the final, um, he looked to the consequences and the final reward of those who would follow God. And the reward for those who choose to suffer the affliction now is far better than any kind of reward that a person can have for follow the things of the, following the things of this world. And you might bring up examples. We hear them in the news all the time of famous people that the world wants to be like, and then there goes another one, committed suicide, died in a bathtub over, of an overdose, whatever else. Sports stars, and they're strung out on drugs, and then this, and they lost all their money gambling and whatever else. And just highlighting that, look, the pleasures of sin don't last. And you look at some of the people who have what so many people want, the riches and the fame, and are they happy? No, they're miserable. And we feed on it in our People magazine and everything else, and they have an issue every week because there's so much to tell. <laughs> so anyway, the passing pleasures of sin and the reward. 
Number four, what counsel does the Bible give about interpersonal relationships? 1 Corinthians 15.33 is a text that says, Do not be deceived. God is not... No, no, that's not God is mine. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Um, that's the NIV version of it. Um, I, I, I've got that so in my head, I always forget the New King James version of it. But, and I think I have... Yeah, I have it there. Bad company corrupts good character, even in the note. So if you had a different translation. But the point is, the Bible tells us that the people we hang around with are going to affect the kind of person we become. And as Christians, we need to make sure that we're not choosing to spend our time with people who draw us away from Christ. If we don't make that distinction, we will be drawn away. And so you're, this is why you're giving this study. You're wanting a person to understand. You're not going to be happy when you're following the enemy in his ways. And they, they know that already, but a lot of times people don't process through. But they're my friends. Well, they're not their, you know, and, and what happens with a lot of people, they're not your friends if they disrespect your religion. And this is what happens with a lot of people. I mean, I've had people who are non-Christian friends, but they respect the choices, you know, and you say, this is, I don't do this. Not. But in most cases, when you're, you have a non-Christian friend and you choose to start following Christ, you know, I didn't, I didn't tell my friends off and try to get rid of my friends, but they just kind of went when I became a Christian because I didn't do what they did. Well, the Bible warns us, and Paul says, and, and this text starts, and I emphasize this, do not be deceived. Evil, evil communications corrupt good habits, I think is what the New King James says. Do not, why would he say do not be deceived? Because what are we going to say? You say your friends are, are having a bad influence on you. Oh, you don't know what I'm... Maybe other people's friends have a bad influence, but not my friends. It's not affecting me, right? Hey, don't be deceived. The Apostle Paul knows that the, de the devil deceives us in this point. We always think, well, it's not affecting me. It is affecting you. Bad company corrupts good character. Number five, does the Bible say anything about premarital sex? I bring this up just because of our society. Even in the Christian church today, this is almost... Uh, uh, this thing is almost gone. It's like, oh, as long as you love each other, you can have sex whenever you want. I can't tell you as a pastor, I wish everybody had to be a pastor and perform marriages and then counseling to the couples that are all messed up because they got into physical relationships too soon. People don't understand, but the Bible, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2, the Bible said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And so you know what it's talking about. So it's not just talking about, you know, a touch. He says, but so that because of fornication, let each man have his own wife. So in the context, it's talking, the touch is a sexual touch. And what does the apostle say? If you're going to have a sexual touch, you need to have a wife. You need to be married, okay? Or a husband, right? Hebrews 13.4 says that um, marriage is honorable and the bed of marriage is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So what the, in that text, it's contrasting people who have those sexual acts, talking about the marriage bed, in the confines of marriage, it's undefiled. But outside of marriage, it's called fornication and adultery, which the Bible says people are not going to enter the kingdom of God because of those things. So, and that, I have that in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 says that, and that's in the passage there. Another one that's in the note, and another one I reference in the note, another point is the woman at the well. I remember, I didn't always think this way. When I first became a Christian, I used to argue this. I was married, but my brother Jim wasn't married, and I had other friends that weren't married, and they had girlfriends. I'm like, hey, you know, it's not a big deal because that marriage is just, a, it's just the government. It's a piece of paper. You've probably heard this kind of thing before. Well, 
when Jesus talked to the woman at the well, she was living with a man, okay? You make no mistake. It's pretty clear from the passage. Jesus said, do you have a husband? She says, no, I don't have a husband. He said, what you've said is true. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you're with is not your husband. Well, I'm telling you, she was with the man, but she wasn't married to the man. Jesus didn't just consider it a piece of paper. God, marriage, sexual activity is, is designed as a privilege of the marriage relationship. And, and, and I tell young men and young women, don't give people the benefits of the relationship without the commitment of the relationship. You're going to mess yourself up. And, you're, and Anyway, the Lord's telling us this is another thing that God gives us to guarantee our happiness. Blessed is the one who delights in the instruction of God. So we touch on interpersonal relationships and then, you know, romantic relationships. Number six, what counsel does the Bible give about the things we look at? Psalm 101 is where the Bible says, David says, I set no impure thing before my eyes. Um, what are we putting before our eyes? And I'll build on that actually in the next uh, question. Takes it a little bit further, not just with eyes but our senses. Number seven, what does the Bible say about TV, movies, video games, and the Internet? And, I mean, somebody could argue, nothing. It doesn't say anything. There wasn't that, they didn't have that in their time. But I'm addressing a principle here. Matthew 6, 22 and 23, Jesus said, The eye is the lamp of the body. Okay? He says, therefore, if the eye is good, the body will be full of light. But if the eye is evil, the body will be full of darkness. Now, what he's trying to say is your, what your senses take in will affect the kind of person you are. It's the same thing as the parentheses there, 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says, by beholding, we become, we become changed in the same image as that we behold. This is just another way of saying it. And so the things we take in through our eyes, through our ears, the things we read, the things we watch, they affect us. And you can give... You know, I'll give examples in the study. You'll have your own examples. But I studied with a young couple. The wife was watching soap operas. I don't know if I shared this the other day. But she was watching soap operas. Maybe I did. Anyway, I counseled with this couple, and they were having marital problems. And this just came out in the discussion. She's watching these soap operas. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen these things, but you've got to understand that when you watch um, TV shows, those shows are not just entertaining you. They're teaching you how to solve your problems. You watch how they do it, and you're going to do it like they do it. And if some woman on that soap opera is getting sassy with her husband, then that wife is going to watch that, and she's going to get sassy with her husband and wonder why it doesn't work out quite as well as it worked out in the soap opera. Anyway, I told her. She's talked about this, and I said, look, do this for me for a week. We study once a week. Don't watch any this week. And when I came back the next week, she said, I cannot believe how that was affecting the way I treated my husband. Okay, the things we take in and read, those are shaping us. And so we want to choose things that are good and uh, not those things that are evil. Yes? Um, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd say you're an idiot. No, I wouldn't say that. But I mean, in a roundabout way I would, I'd say, are you really telling me that you can't... Let me tell you, if we bring into a, let, let, let's walk into a smoke-filled room. Does that defile you? You know. Anyway, I'm not going to take the time to go into the passage, but the passage Jesus is talking about, if you look at Mark 7, he's talking about ceremonial washings. And he's addressing ceremonial washings. He's not addressing influence because it's the same Jesus. If that's the case, what does he mean here in Mark 6 or Matthew 6? 
that the eye is a lamp of the body. And he's saying that you're going to be defiled by what comes in. So most, I'm going to tell you, a lot of times when you get those kind of objections, people are just wanting to be resistant. Anybody who's at all honest with themselves is going to realize that they're, you notice I don't specify here, and I, didn't spe I don't specify to a person, this is what you can watch, this is what you can listen to. I'm not going to spell that out for them. I want them to understand the principle, and everybody knows that there are things that I watch, there are people I hang out with, there are things that I do that affect me negatively. There are some people I hang out with and they bring me down. I just ask a person, are you telling me there's nobody, do you have anybody you've ever been around that just kind of brings you down or picks you up? So you're telling me something outside of you doesn't affect you? I mean, everybody can relate to that at some level. And I just want them to understand that as a Christian, we need, to, we need to understand that those things affect us, and so we need to evaluate from a Christian perspective what I'm putting into my eyes and ears and, and through my senses, what I'm taking in through my senses. Uh, number eight, what does the Bible say about the music we listen to? And here the Bible talks about uh, how we are urged, the apostle urges us to listen to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And in the note, I just say songs that build up our Christian experience instead of tearing it down. Again, I don't tell them specifically what they can listen to. I, I, I personally think sometimes we go a little overboard in trying to delineate everything for everybody else. I think the principles need to be given. I think people need to understand uh, some of that. Acts 16 is not something I necessarily would bring up. Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But Acts 16, 16 to 18 is when the woman who had an evil spirit was following the apostles, and Paul, and she said, these are men of the most high God. Hear them. You remember that? And then Paul turned and rebuked the spirit, and the spirit left the woman. Well, here's an evil, here's a woman who's possessed by the devil, but she's saying all the right words. Okay, because some people argue with me, well, they're, 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 you know, the music I'm listening to is singing about God. Well, just because it calls itself Christian music doesn't mean it's Christian. And I'm not making the rules for that, but I'm just saying, I want, to, I want them to understand these principles. You need to choose those things that actually, I don't care if it's called Christian. Here's my question for you. Is it really drawing you closer to God? Oh, yeah, I feel so much better. Well, let me ask you, are you spending more time in the Word? Well, no, I listen to my music instead. Well, then that's not drawing you close. You know, so that kind of thing. Just laying those things out. Number nine, what happens when we allow worldly practices into our homes? The Bible says we become an abomination like them. That's what Deuteronomy 7.26 says. Don't take in the abominations of the nations. Don't follow the world's practices because they're going to have that influence. So all of these, uh, the last few we listened to, have been talking about different influences that uh, the world has. Number 10, what did the Ephesian believers do when they realized that certain lifestyle practices were displeasing to God? The Bible says in Acts 19, uh, I could give a whole sermon on this. I love this passage, but they, they, they burned their magical books. It was the people of Ephesus, and they burned the books. And what the don't miss this. It says that when they burned their books, in fact, turn to Acts 19. And I want you to see, the passage is interesting because it starts out with some exorcists who figure they're going to cast out evil spirits by the Jesus who Paul preaches. So right away, they don't know him. They don't know Jesus. They're like, they're using Jesus as a good luck charm. They're like, well, okay, Paul casts out. We're going to try this. And the Bible says the evil spirit, look at verse uh, 13. Some of the itinerant Jewish, Acts 19, 13. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call 
the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom was the evil spirit, or in whom the evil spirit was, leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so they, they fled out of that house naked and wounded. It didn't turn out so well, okay? There's a couple things there that really hit me. First of all, the evil spirit knew Jesus and he knew Paul, but he didn't even know his own servant, right? The man was, a, he was, he, the, 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 the itinerant exorcists, they weren't committed to Jesus and you can only serve two masters, so if they weren't on Jesus' side, whose side were they on? The devil. The devil who tells you, I'll take care of you, I'll make everything, I care about you. He didn't even know their name, but he knew Jesus' name and he knew Paul's name, right? So, it says in verse 17, this saying became known to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified and look at what 18 says, and many who what? Had believed. What does that tell us? They didn't just become believers. They had believed, came doing what? Confessing and telling their deeds. Why? Don't miss this. These people evidently had not well, it goes on to say in the next verse, also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them. It totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, the point is this. They evidently had been believers, but they hadn't made a thorough reformation in their lives. They'd just kind of been playing around with Christianity, and then they saw what happened to people who played around with the name of Jesus instead of taking it seriously with this whole Jewish exorcist, and these men were naked and wounded, and they thought, we better get rid of some things and get serious about this. And that's what happened. And so they reformed. And the Bible says when they, the question in the lesson is, um, what did the Ephesian believers do when they realized that certain lifestyle practices were displeasing to God? They burned their magical books. And notice verse 20. Once they did that, it says, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now this may be speaking in a general sense in, in, in Ephesus, but I like to think of it in a personal sense. And in my lesson, I bring this out. So when you deal with those things in your life that are contrary to God and you put them out, then and only then can the word of God grow mighty and prevail in your life. So when they, when they found out that there were certain lifestyle practices displeasing, they got rid of them. And then what happened? Their spiritual life revived. Number 11 is the way a Christian chooses to dress important. Yeah, we have a whole lesson on that. I don't go into a lot of it here. I just go into 1 Timothy 2 and... You'll notice the note, it, 1 Timothy 2 just talks about dressing in modest apparel um, with, with propriety and moderation and uh, not with gold and pearls, etc. I don't go into the gold and pearls yet, but the note just makes the point that, uh, you know, there's an old saying that says you never get a second chance to make a first impression. That impression often has a lot to do with how we dress. Christians should dress. A Christian dress should be neat and appropriate, not extravagant or flashy, drawing undue attention to oneself. Uh, you know, we think of modesty and oftentimes in terms of um, not being too revealing. But modesty also has to do with not, being, not drawing a lot of attention uh, to yourself. And in fact, Ellen White makes an interesting statement to women of her day who were trying to be real modest. And so they wanted to be extremely covered up and what have you. And, and Ellen White said, be careful not to make yourself a gazing stock. They were, doing the exact, they were being immodest by being modest. Or trying to be modest because they were, they were, they were, they were, they made themselves a gazing stock. Um, anyway, I could say more about that, but 
The, uh, you want to dress, Christian dress should be modest, not seductive or revealing. Uh, personal emphasis should be to please God with inward character, not to please people with the outward display. So you're just laying out the principle there. Number 12, is it acceptable for a Christian to use slang or foul language? I cannot believe I dropped this out, out of my presentation only to have, because in, in, it was a long sermon in our evangelistic series, and I should have left it in. Um, I don't know. Maybe you wouldn't be surprised how many of our church members swear. It's surprising to me. And it's just, in, 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 it's in, in evangelical Christianity, it's almost like a, it's just, hey, we're, we're human. But if you read the passage here, Mark 14, 69 to 71, this is about Peter's denial. And it's interesting that the Bible says that Peter, um, when he denied Christ, they said, we know you're one of them because you're a Galilean and your speech betrays you. Some translations will say your dialect or something. That's not what it's saying. And you can see in the context. What were Galileans? They were fishermen. Do we have a saying today regarding fishermen or sailors? I've told people I used to swear like a sailor. Well, you've heard that expression probably. Okay, they said, you're a Galilean and your speech betrays you. And you know what Peter did right after they told him that? He began to deny his Lord with cursing and swearing. See, they said, you're a Galilean and you don't swear like the rest of the Galileans. We know you're one of his followers. His followers were known by their purity of speech. And when Peter tried to show them he wasn't, he did it by cursing and swearing. So I make that point. A Christian speech should be pure. Number 13, what is a good general guideline for Christian entertainment behavior? Philippians 4, 8, whatsoever things are true, noble, just, lovely, of good report. Um, that's a fantastic text, especially to summarize a lot of what you've talked about. Number 14, in light of all these things, what does God urge us to do? Ephesians 4, 70 to 24 talks about putting off the old man. That is our old way of life, our old conduct, and putting on the new man. And it gives us some specifics in there about, and this talks about in the passage, touches a little bit on our, our gentleness and kindness and that kind of thing. But we ought to live new lives that glorify Jesus. Number 15, how are we accomplish these changes? Daniel 1.8 talks about purposing in our hearts. You've got to make a choice to do what's right. It's not going to automatically come. The Lord will give you power. That's why Philippians 4.13 is there. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I like to have that in there. But we've got to make a decision to follow Jesus, to honor him in our lifestyle. So there's your lifestyle lesson. Let's see how fast we can do the Christian Because it's in this lesson. Yeah, I've got a whole lesson on it. Because, yeah, Christian dress is what it says on the top. This lesson, listen, I mean, we just don't talk about this in our church anymore. And listen, I've seen people be critical about this. I've known the, the jewelry police in the church, right, who come in and some new person visits, and they're going to go and tell them how. I don't condone that, but we can't allow that to deter us from the biblical principle that God has given us of modesty and dress, including the not wearing of jewelry. This is something... What I'm about to share is something, well, you're going to see the reasons for it in this. This is not exhaustive, by the way. There's a lot more you could look at on the subject of jewelry. There's a, a, yes, you don't have it? There's a great little book by uh, Angel Rodriguez, who used to work with the Biblical Research Institute, called, 
I think it's called Jewelry, Everything You Wanted to Know and We're Afraid to Ask or something like that. There's a lot that people don't understand about jewelry in Bible times. In Bible times, you didn't carry around a wallet with dollars and quarters and nickels in it. You carried jewelry. Jewelry was monetary. You would, not only would people wear it, and it was a convenient wallet for some, you, could, you would pay for things with it. And so you see, you see that, uh, for example, in, in uh, was it uh, Isaac, who gave for a dowry, gave jewelry? Um, you see examples of this, and you're like, well, what's he doing with jewelry? You know, if he's a, well, you'll find God's people with jewelry for two, one of two reasons. Number one, they used it for money. Number two, they were backslidden just like we get backslidden. Okay? So sometimes people say, well, God's people had jewelry. Yeah, they had all, they have multiple wives too. Are we going to go there? I mean, what other things are we going to do? But the general tenor we're going to see in Scripture in this study uh, notice the purpose of the study is to show that our dress is a reflection of our character and commitment to God and that he expects his followers to dress in a way that reveals to others that they find their personal value and sense of belonging in him rather than the customs of the world. Now, this isn't just on jewelry, but it's also on our dress. And you'll see, uh, starting out with 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, the question is, does the way we live have an effect on our witness? Let's look at this. 1 Peter 2. Lunchtime's at 12.30, right? I don't know when it is. I just want to see what reaction I get out of that. No, I won't go real long with this because um, you can follow through it. I want to give you the flow. But I do want to look up this text. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. I'm talking and not turning. Um, I want you to notice what Peter says here. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. If you're using the, using the King James, it talks about peculiar. That word is peculiar in the sense of belonging to someone. And so the, I like the reading in the New King James. This is really what it's saying. His own, we're peculiar in the sense that we are God, God. We're his special people. He points to us and says, these are my people. And so Peter says, you're this chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once, once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, that is, we're travelers in this world. This isn't our home. We're looking for another home. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So here he tells us the, the desires of our body are not just outward. They war against our spiritual commitment. Verse 12, now notice this carefully. Having your what? Conduct or conversation. It says in the King James, honorable among the who? Gentiles and non-believers, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe, which they can see, glorify who? God in the day of visitation. So Peter says, when the non-believers see the way you live, they're going to glorify God if you live honorably before God. So the question is, does the way we live have an effect on our witness? Absolutely. It says the Gentiles look at it, and it affects what they think about God. So that's how I start this one out. What does the Bible say about our outward appearance? Romans 13, 14 says we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Now, what do we put on? Usually, literally, what do we what things do when a, when a person hears the term put on, what are the kind of things we put on? Clothing, Clothing is 
one of the first things to come to a person's mind. I mean, you can put on perfume or something else or whatever, but you put on clothes. The apostle uses this language talking about how we live as Christians, that we put on Christ. So he describes Christ as an article of clothing, as a garment. And you may have heard the term, you know, the robe of righteousness. So when we put on Christ, what do people see? They should see Christ, right? And in the same way, then, that would say something about the literal things we put on are going to say something about who we are and who we serve. Number three, will our own belief system affect the way we dress? Luke 8 is the, is the encounter with the demoniacs of the Gadarenes. The Bible says when Jesus came to them, they were demon-possessed and naked. It says when he cast out the demon, they were, the man was clothed and sitting in his right mind. It's not, that's not an accident. Somehow, when the devil gets to people, they want to start taking their clothes off. But here we see that when the man, when the demon was cast out, we see a distinct difference in the way the man dressed, right? Does it, will our own personal belief system affect the way we dress? Yes, it will. Number four, why did Adam and Eve try to cover themselves with fig leaves in Genesis? They were naked and what? And ashamed, right? They were naked and ashamed. The Bible says in Revelation 3, talks about the, the, the white raiment that Jesus wants to give us so that the shame of our nakedness does not appear. What is shame? When you feel shame, can a person feel shame when they're not guilty? I think a person can be ashamed if they, you know, if a person was naked and, and, and uh, all of a sudden, you, you know, you're in the shower and you didn't realize here at camp meeting that they had a camera in your stall and they put it up on the monitors, you'd feel ashamed, not because you did something wrong. Anyway, shame is a, shame is a, if you look at a, anyway, <laughs> no, there, there are no cameras there. Anyway, the point I, 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 I describe it beneath here, but the point I make here is shame is, is um, shame is a very personal feeling. And, and most people, well, I don't know these days. I was going to say most people would be ashamed if they were caught naked somewhere. Okay? So clothing is how we cover that up. And a lot of people say, well, how you dress is not important. I beg to differ. And if any of you have children, you know it's you. Uh, how you I can't just give my kids any clothes to wear to school. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. And you've got it, so especially as a Christian, you're like, okay, I want them to be modest, but I don't want them, they want to fit in, and that's not wrong altogether. So anyway, clothing is, and, and incidentally, you don't, most people don't just buy whatever everybody else buys. I mean, to a degree, we say, oh, I like that on that person, but clothing is very personal to us, isn't it? And the only point I would make here is, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves to cover the shame of their nakedness. Shame is a personal feeling, and clothing is a personal choice. And far from it being an insignificant thing, like some people pretend it is, it's very significant to us how we clothe ourselves. It says, we, we choose the clothes we choose because that's a part of who I am. It's a part of my whole appearance, yes or no. There's thing, things I would show you, and I'd say, put this on. you like, I won't be caught dead in that, right? Because it would say something about you you don't want to say. So I just want to make the point in the study that, you know, this is not, some people make this like a little thing. It's not a little thing. It's a very personal thing. And that personal thing says something about who you are. And you want that something to say you're a Christian. Right? right. How does the Bible say Christian should clothe himself or herself? 1 Timothy 2, 
and 1 Peter 3, both are just talking about the wearing, uh, the not wearing of, of cost, costly clothing or jewelry. Now, don't, and I'll make this point in the study. This, some people think they're following biblical counsel by buying clothes that fall apart because they're not expensive. Costly clothing is not talking about expensive clothing. Good clothing that lasts you is expensive. It's talking about extravagance. It's talking about paying for that extra whatever. Yeah, potentially a mink coat or clothing you can't afford, right? But anyway, and it talks about gold and pearls. And, and so we get into jewelry here. This is where the lesson touches into jewelry and expensive clothing. Two points I would make here. Um, I think it's in 1 Peter 3, and I've had a lot of people bring this up. 1 Peter 3, 3 says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing of gold, putting on a fine apparel. I've had a lot of people say, when I've studied this, well, it says merely outward. No, it doesn't. Merely is italicized in your Bible. It's a supplied word by the translators. It's not there in the original. It's merely isn't there. First Peter three three. Oh wow. It's no, but it's in the New King James in italics in my Bible here. It says let you know First Peter. Do I have the right place here? Let me make sure. Yeah, three three. It says do not let your dormant be merely. Mine has it. So people will bring that up. You just you just want to know that. So when people bring that up, say it's not in the original. The apostle's not saying don't let it merely be outward. He says don't let your adornment be outward. Your focus shouldn't be outward, and it shouldn't be in these things that the world adorns itself with. But it should be inward. 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul says let your adornment not be with these things. And he uses that expression not be with, or not with, not with gold and pearls. Uh, my brother Jim brought up a good example that I really like. He said he went to a restaurant and ordered a, he said, you know, ordered a burrito. He said, I, Okay, I want you to make the burrito, but not with onions. I don't like onions. Okay? They went back, and he said, now they didn't do this at the restaurant he was in, but he said, imagine they went back, got the burrito, brought it out. He cut it, took a bite, and he had onions in it. So he calls the waiter over, and he says, yeah, I asked that you would bring me the burrito, but not with onions. Oh, I thought you meant not with many onions. What would you think? You'd think, what's wrong with this person? I said, not with. What's hard to understand about that, right? But when the Bible says it, not with gold or pearls or, you know, costly array, what is hard to understand about that? And so you want to help a person communicate. God, in his word, he gave this instruction not with these things. Why? And I'll do this really quickly because I know we're, we're out of our time. I like to bring up number six. How is Lucifer adorned in heaven? Do you remember? He was covered with all kinds of jewels. Now, I want to make a very clear point, and I'll do it in the study. This is not to say that God was responsible for Lucifer's fall, but I think that God saw Lucifer and he thought, if a perfect being got lifted up because of his beauty, how much more can an imperfect being? It's just not safe for us. If, we, if, God, if we're going to have jewels, let God put the jewels on when we get to his kingdom. But here he has instructed his people not with these things. Some examples, and just running a, doing a quick run-through of Bible history, number seven, when Jacob and his family decided to make a recommitment of their lives to God, what did they do? You read Genesis 35, 1 to 4, and it says they took off their jewelry, uh, they disposed of their idols and the earrings that were in their ears. Well, a lot of people don't understand that their idolatry and their jewelry were pretty tied together. 
And it is so, it's so today, a lot of people just don't realize it, some of the idols they have. But it was, what you're going to find is when you go through the Bible, jewelry is linked with idolatry. It's a stumbling block for God's people. And I'm going to tell you as a pastor, and I'm going to be very clear with you. In my, let's see, I started in pastoral ministry in 1999. Um, before that, I did Bible work and things like that. From the time I've become a Christian, I have never, and I want to emphasize the word never, seen a person who didn't wear jewelry start to put on jewelry when they're becoming more spiritual. It's always the reverse. If I see a person who doesn't wear jewelry start to wear jewelry, it's not because they're getting closer to Jesus. Never, never, never. Okay? Well, the Bible tells us that, but we, sometimes we just want to find fault with it and say, well, is that what it's really saying? The Bible associates it with idolatry. When Jacob made that recommitment, they put off the jewelry. Okay? You come to the golden calf. What did the Israelites make the golden calf out of? And how did God respond? They made it out of the jewelry of the people. And Ellen White tells us in the book Patriarchs and Prophets that the whole reason Aaron called for the jewelry is because Aaron did not want to make the golden calf, but he wasn't strong enough to say no to the people. So he figured, oh, I'll ask them for the jewelry. They, don't, they always argue about taking their jewelry off anyway, so they'll never do it. Only they're more than willing to take the jewelry off to make the golden calf. You read it in uh, Patriarchs and Prophets. So they made it out of, the, out of the jewelry. Well, what happened? God told them at that point to strip off their ornaments so he could know what to do with them. And you'll read it there in Exodus 33, 5 and 6. And the Bible says the children of Israel stripped off their ornaments literally. And you don't get this in the New King James, but you get it in, for example, the ESV and the NASB, the Amplified Bible. And you find it there at the end of the explanation. It says from Mount Horeb onward. The verbiage that's used there, God didn't just say they stripped off their jewelry. From here on out, God said, I don't want it on you. Okay, they came out of Egypt, and he evidently allowed this period of time, but he said, you know, stumbling block and get it off. And from then on, they were not to have the jewelry, which is why in number nine, what distinction do we later find between Israel and the surrounding nations? In Judges 8, they were at war with Midian, and it says that they stripped some of the uh, 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 conquests of their jewelry, of their earrings. And then it says in the passage, for they, uh, they wore earrings, for they were Ishmaelites. So why is the Bible giving the explanation? Because the reader is going to say, well, wait a minute, I thought they stripped off their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. God's people didn't have jewelry. Oh, no, they didn't. They had jewelry because they were Ishmaelites. In other words, it's telling us the distinction. Why they had it? They weren't God among God's people. Oh, that explains it. In other words, it wasn't found among God's people who were faithful. Number 10, how does God portray his people in apostasy? And I'm not going to read it, but Isaiah 3, 16 to 21, they're all decked out in jewelry. And it, and, and it is very clear as God is describing them. That's, it's, it's. Now look, let me say this here. And, and when you're studying this subject, subject with a person, you've been through a lot of studies with them. I'm not presenting this up front with people. Because dress, including jewelry, is very personal to people, and especially... It's getting more so with guys, but especially with girls. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that they do to make themselves beautiful. And unfortunately, men have so um, used women that, that and, and oh, you know what I'm saying, that women feel they need this. Because they're trying to keep the attention of the guy, because the guy's always looking around here, there, where he shouldn't be looking. And it's just the billboards and everything else. And so it's a very personal thing. And when you address this with a woman, she's thinking, I remember studying. My brother Jim and I studied before we were pastors. 
we didn't know what we were doing. We were going over trying to answer all the objections. I'll talk about that more tomorrow. But she finally got to the point in all of our, we're trying to answer it. Well, you know, but the text says this year and this and this and this reason and this reason. And finally she said, well, if I do that, she says, I'm going to look so dowdy. I'd never heard the word dowdy before, but dowdy's plain. And she said, I've already given up this and changed this, and I've got my family members on me, this and that. If I give this up, I'm going to be so plain Jane, and people are going to so ridicule me. And, and, and it, that's what it was for her. I'm going to look plain and dull and unattractive. And so you've got to be sensitive with this. And I, I mean, people come into the church wearing jewelry. Uh, they're not apostate coming in. I mean, some may be, I guess. But the reality is, um, I just you want to deal with it understand that this is something our society and our world really has a demand for, all these worldly things. And people feel like they need this to be worth something. And you're really wanting to convey that God doesn't need, you're worth everything to God. You're beautiful to God. You're handsome to God. You don't need these things that the world says you need. When you start to give into the world and let the world tell you what you need to be important, the world will never stop telling you. And so just understand that when you're going through. God is what I'm trying to show through this is the devil's always used these things as stumbling blocks to, his, to God's people. And it always leads them into apostasy. We see this in Isaiah, uh, number, question number 10. Number 11, what was the tendency of God's people when they began to adorn themselves? Hosea 2.13 says they put on, she, put, she decked herself with her jewels and went after her lovers, speaking of his people. She put on the jewelry and went after other gods. It led them away from God. And, and so again, you just see a trend of idolatry here. Number 12, how does Jesus differentiate between his faithful and unfaithful at the end of time? Got two women in Revelation. The only way you know that one is apostate and one isn't is by what they're wearing. One is wearing gold, pearls, costly clothing, right? The other is dressed in the sun, moon, and stars. You notice that? The Bible says in Psalm 19, the heavens, sun, moon, and stars, declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. So one is dressed in things that give glory to God, the other gives glory to self. This is the picture. What is revelation? It's a communication who gave to John? Jesus did. So who painted the picture of the two women? Jesus did. And Jesus said, this is what a pure woman looks like, and this is what a harlot woman looks like. Okay. So all the way through the Bible, we have this consistency in the teaching of jewelry. It's just something God says is not safe for us uh, in our Christian uh, experience. Number 13, I love this passage, the point that it makes. What is the ultimate effect of trying to fit in with the world and gain its approval? 2 Kings 9.30, this is when Queen Jezebel hears that Jehu is coming to execute judgment on the house of Ahab. Okay, so he's coming. Basically, this is judgment day for her. She hears he's coming. He's riding in. And what does the Bible say? She does up her hair, puts on her makeup, and looks out the window. Like, what are you doing on Judgment Day? I'm getting on my knees and pleading with the Lord and making sure I'm right with Him. But her life was so involved in her outward appearance that even when it came down to her soul being on the line, she was more focused on outward things than inward things. And this is the point I want to make in this study. The devil wants to get you so caught up in trying to look beautiful and important to everybody else that you forget the preparation you need to make of soul to be ready when Jesus comes again. Okay? So number 14, what does God urge us to do? 
It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God wants us to be transformed, to be different kind of people, to be able to glorify him, for people to see him in us, to see that we don't need the world and all the things the world says make us important, that we recognize our value in God, and we want other people to see that their value also is in God. Um, anyway, that's the gist of that study. Now, there are a number of objection uh, uh, things that people bring up. And you can read through those, but I also have four quotes here, and I just want you to notice, I'm not going to read the quotes, but I'll, I want you to note the four quotes. The first is John Wesley, he's co-founder of the Methodist Church. The next is from Charles Finney, he was a Presbyterian revivalist. The third is C.H. Spurgeon, uh, known as the Prince of Preachers, he's a Baptist. All of these churches used to teach that Christians didn't wear jewelry and costly clothing, all of them. But what's happened, and it's creeping into our church, is we've been pressured by the world around us, and the other churches have given in. But they didn't used to teach that. And a lot of people are surprised to realize that... Yeah. A lot of people are surprised to realize this is not just unique to Adventism. And then the last one is one of my favorites. How many of you know who Mr. T is? Mr. T was known, is known, for all the jewelry he used to wear. This guy had so much gold. I mean, I couldn't walk with that much gold on, with the weight and everything. But look at the quote at the very bottom of the page. During Hurricane Katrina, he went down to help out in the aftermath, and he started to feel self-conscious about all his gold. And this is what he says. As a spiritual man, he's a Christian, as a spiritual man, I felt it would be a sin against my God for me to wear all that gold again because I spent a lot of time with the less fortunate. So now listen. What do you think he did? How many of you have seen Mr. T? How much gold did he have? How easy would it have been for him to say, you know what, I'm just going to move down to a necklace and a ring? You know what he took off? All of it. He didn't wear the gold. I mean, yes, I've seen him wear it since in promo ads or something. Somebody wants him to look like the old, but he doesn't wear it anymore. Why? Because he says, I'm a Christian man. Well, have mercy. I haven't gone into, for Seventh-day Adventists, I haven't gone into, and I, I won't because of time here, but look up, let me give you a page. In the book Evangelism, there's several quotes together about the subject of Christian dress. Evangelism, page 268, right in there, 267, 268, and onward. Very clear statements. If we at all had question, God tries to clear that question up, that this is just something that God's last day people should not be doing, is adorning themselves like the world. We want the world to know, we want people of the world to know, they don't need the world to be important. God already thinks they're important. So important he gave his son that they could have eternal life. Amen? Anyway, well, we went longer than I wanted to, but I think we got through it. Huh? No, because we got, we got to have time for our Bible study. So let's pray and get you out of here quick. huh? Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your word of truth. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to sense even more and more, Lord, that the truth is liberating, that these things what we're studying, that some people sometimes feel are restriction of their liberty or freedom, are liberating, are freeing, are, are the key to happiness in this life and the life to come. Father, there are people in this world that are looking for happiness in all the wrong places. I pray you help us to be confident and bold in teaching them that happiness comes from following the instruction of the Lord. Be with us now, Lord, as we go to lunch. I pray that you would give us clarity of mind for when we come back together to study your word. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.